Hey Home Slices, before we get into the review today, I want to share a special announcement. I got to be featured as a guest star on another podcast and you should definitely know about it. There's a super cool podcast called The Cage Queens, where hosts Aaron and Jesse are reviewing every Nicolas Cage movie in chronological order. And I got to be featured in episode 68, where we review the 2014 movie Outcast. The movie was bad, but the discussion was great. So you should definitely head over to The Cage Queens website and and social media pages to listen. That's cagequeens.podbean.com or if you want to find them on Instagram, it's at cagequeenspodcast. You don't want to miss it. I feel so bad. I've got a worried mind. I'm so lonesome all the time since I left my baby behind on Blue Bayou. Welcome to Sup Media Reviews, the podcast that never needs spoiler alerts because it takes you back in time to relive the nostalgia of classic TV shows and films that you've probably already seen. I'm your host, Kiara, and each week I'll dive into the archives to bring you my take on movies and TV shows from at least 20 years ago. From cult classics to forgotten gems, I'll review them all and give my honest opinion on their impact and whether or not they still hold up today. Join me as we revisit the iconic characters, memorable moments, and timeless themes that made these shows and films so special. So take a break from adulting and get ready for a trip down memory lane with Sup Media Reviews. What is up, Home Slices? Thanks so much for tuning into Seth Media Reviews. I'm Kiera, your host, and I'm stoked to review the 2003 film Dreamcatcher, based on the 2001 book of the same name by Stephen King. As the spooky season is approaching, we will mostly be sticking to thriller, horror, and sci-fi movies as we get closer to Halloween. I've mentioned before that horror movies are really not my favorite genre, but there are some horror films that I can stand, and Dreamcatcher is one of them. The movie features Morgan Freeman as Colonel Abraham Curtis, Damian Lewis as Jonesy, Thomas Jane as Henry, Timothy Oliphant, or Oliphant, sorry, as Pete, and Jason Lee as Beaver. Stephen King is a legend in the horror genre, and this movie explores magical powers and otherworldly beings without being super scary, so this is actually right up my alley. Here are a few fun facts about the movie. Stephen King sold the movie rights of Dreamcatcher for $1. Some people might say they paid too much. I won't say that. <laughs> the second fun fact is that the main characters hail from Derry, Maine, a fictional small town that neighbors Castle Rock, the setting of many other Stephen King stories. Derry was also the setting for the movie It, which came out in 1990. That movie frightened me as a child, and I probably feel like it was going to take some courage for me to rewatch it. <laughs> Like I said, there are some horror stories that I just can't get down with. And it was one of the ones that kind of scarred me as a child. And I'll have to muster some courage to revisit it. But the flashback scene in Dreamcatcher where the boys first meet Douglas is the Barons from the Stephen King film. So they even kept some of the same setting. And the final fun fact is that Thomas Jane, who portrayed Henry, starred in the film because his mother, a big fan of Stephen King, told him to. So always listen to your mom, I guess. 
<laughs> so if you want to check out Dreamcatcher, you can rent it on Amazon Prime, among other streaming sites. Unfortunately, at the time of this recording, it's not available for free. So I spent $2.99 on this, okay? But it's worth it for this podcast and for my audience. So once more, if I have to rent a movie, I like to do it on Amazon Prime because the x-ray feature by IMDb is like really good making sure I keep track of characters and actors. So this is not sponsored at all. This podcast is not popular enough yet at the time of this recording to <laughs> to warrant advertisers. But if we ever get there, I have been bigging up the x-ray feature on Amazon Prime for a number of episodes now. So I'm just going to put that into the universe. So let's talk about my personal connection to this film. Stephen King, for better or for worse, is a legend in this genre. His brand of horror is generally tolerable for me, despite being a little problematic, okay? Like, he frequently uses the magical Negro trope. We've talked about this before. Feel free to look it up. But movies like The Green Mile, The Stand, The Shining, and The Talisman, or the books, I guess, as well, use Black figures to really bolster and achieve a white protagonist ends. And it usually doesn't end well for <laughs> the magical Negro. So Stephen King is pretty famous for doing this and it's problematic. But in this movie, interestingly enough, instead of using a magical Negro, he uses a magical disabled person. And it's like, uh, okay, I don't like that. <laughs> and that's why throughout this film, instead of using the name Duddits like they use throughout this movie, I'm just going to say Douglas. I feel like that's like a little weird, a little ableist maybe. So yeah, using people of color or people with disabilities as mystical creatures is like not okay. So he doesn't do this always and he doesn't do it in every story, but he does it often enough for it to be a problem. Another element of my personal connection is that this particular movie has a really interesting depiction of a mind or your memory, which I always thought was really cool. And it explores the relationship between kind of like a parasite and a host in a way that feels unique as well. So I find that interesting. Also, there's a second kind of storyline with Morgan Freeman, and he has the worst eyebrows imaginable in this movie. It's pretty unforgettable. But we get to see that there are multiple approaches to a problem that could eventually mean the end of the world. And so we get to see, you know, a super zealous kind of military or paramilitary leader versus a person who approaches things with a more scientific and kind, humane approach. So that kind of second storyline is a little neat as well. And finally, I could rewatch this movie about once a year. Again, because I have an aversion to like truly scary horror films, I usually stick to my limited rotation of movies during the spooky season. And this one always makes my list. So it has a thrilling sci-fi element without being nightmare inducing, which again is right up my alley. So I'm really excited to share my perspective on this movie. So let's dive in. So the movie opens with some creepy images that are a little hard to make out. We see a few of them that look like bones and feathers and 
all that kind of stuff. The title flashes across the screen. And as more imagery comes up, we get themes of winter. We see a snowy forest, we see mountains, we see ice. And then we actually see images that were too close up for me to recognize at first of an actual dream catcher. So in some Native American and First Nations cultures, a dream catcher is a handmade willow hoop on which is a woven net or web. It may also be decorated with sacred items such as feathers or beads. Traditionally, dream catchers are hung over a cradle or bed as protection. Dream catchers were adopted in the pan-Indian movement of the 1960s and 70s and gained popularity as widely marketed native crafts items in the 1980s. Keep this in mind as we go throughout the film. For whatever reason, prior to re-watching, I felt like the theme of a dream catcher actually gets lost in this movie so I'm going to be paying close attention to that. So the movie finally starts for real for real with a man drawing a dream catcher. As the man is doodling we hear a different man talking about cheeseburgers from Carl's Jr. Y'all Carl's Jr. is actually quite underrated. When I lived in the south there was not really a Carl's Jr. So now that I live in the Pacific Northwest we have Hardee's which is basically the same thing and they have the best chicken tenders and they always do them fresh. Take that tip for free, okay? But the man who's doodling appears to be a psychologist or psychiatrist who's listening to his client. So we find out that this man is Henry. He's a mental health professional played by Thomas Jane. And he's writing his notes for this appointment. And he finally interrupts the client who's kind of rambling about cheeseburgers. And he asks if the client's compulsive eating is because he thinks he killed his mother. The client is an overweight man. And so the client keeps saying like, I never told you anything about the details of my mother's death. And then with a weird, stupid zoom in of the camera, we realize that Henry can read minds. His client gets really angry and embarrassed. He ends up breaking the therapy chair and he storms away. So we're not going to get into the fat phobia of this <laughs> because we can stay there all day. The man could have left from being angry without having to break the chair. Yeah. And then Henry like accuses him of basically committing suicide by food. It's mm -mm, no, I don't think we're ready to have a conversation about how fat phobia is very similar to other phobias. So let's move on. So Henry, after the session, takes a gun out of his desk drawer, points it at his head and gets ready to pull the trigger when he gets a phone call. Henry appears to be having a really hard time these days. Being a suicidal mental health professional is kind of ironic. But interestingly enough, Henry is able to identify the caller as someone named Jonesy even before he answers the phone. And then he accidentally shoots a bullet through his Harvard degree. So if you could read minds, do you think you could even pretend to be smart enough to go to Harvard? Probably. But anyway, he finally answers the phone and it is a man named Jonesy who's played by Damian Lewis. He's kind of a rugged ginger and they use a weird acronym SSDD that we find out what it means later. But at the time I was taking notes, I didn't remember off the top of my head. But Jonesy wants to go visit someone that they call Duddits on Saturday. So you all, I feel like it's a little offensive to 
call the character that. I know the character's not real, but I'm going to call this character Douglas because that's his real name. So Jonesy wants to visit Douglas on Saturday and Henry agrees and puts the gun away. So now he has something to look forward to and no longer wants to commit suicide. So next up, we see Jonesy. He is a college professor and he's having a meeting with a scholarship student named David in his office because David was caught cheating on an exam. Jonesy identifies with this kid because they are both from Maine and the kid is like clearly distressed because he's basically going to get kicked out of college for this infraction. But Jonesy sees how, you know, upset he is and they have the main connection. So Jonesy is like, you know, David, you didn't take the exam because you were sick. So what you're going to do is write me like a 3000 word essay on the Norman Conquest instead. And, you know, he realizes that if the kid gets kicked out of school, he'll have to return to Pittsville in Maine, which we can surmise as like a crappy town and there's no future for David there, I guess. So David asked Jonesy how he knew he cheated because Jonesy was not there. And then Jonesy is like, sometimes I just know. And at this point in the story, I'm already getting annoyed. Like we're not even 10 minutes into the story. And some of the things in this movie are coming across as cheesy already. Like some of the stuff with Henry, some of the stuff with Jonesy already. I'm like, I don't remember the movie being this cheesy. Yeah, it gets worse, but <laughs> I'm realizing that now that I'm rewatching some of my favorite movies, now that I have this podcast, makes me look at them through like this really critical lens, like with the magnifying glass, basically. But something about the way he was saying, like, sometimes I just know, it feels corny to me. And like I said, it gets worse throughout the movie. But anyways, it looks like Jonesy has the ability to know things that happen when he isn't there. His power is a little less clear than Henry's. Henry's obviously can read minds, but Jonesy, knowing that his student cheated when he wasn't present, feels less clear about what the power actually is, but whatever. Next up, we see Pete. You all, Pete is played by the really handsome Timothy Oliphant. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. You may remember him from The Office. He was like the hot salesman that was out in the field, the traveling salesman. That's a good looking man, y'all. But in this movie, he's a car salesman. So anyways, like this an attractive blonde lady comes into the dealership asking for an emergency set of replacement keys for her car because she has an appointment. But when Pete says that, like, if we make you a new key, it's going to take a day, but I can offer to help you find your keys. And then he accidentally calls her by her name without her saying what her name is. And she clocks it, but he's like, oh, I just guessed that your name was Trish. Yeah, blonde lady, your name must be Trish. <laughs> So right away, we see that even Pete has similar powers to both Jonesy and Henry. So yes, we have another guy with telepathic powers. So they go back to the place where she last saw her keys and through his powers of deduction and some creative finger wagging, he leverages his ability to find the lady's keys, but not before using her keys as a way to get a date with her. Hmm. I wonder if this lady was ugly, would he still use his powers to help her find her keys? <laughs> we all know that there are a large number of men who are only helpful to ladies if they think that they can get something out of it. 
or if they think that the lady is attractive. So a uh, question for another day. But the blonde lady agrees to the terms, even though she is visibly freaked out by his ability to recall her every move, despite not being present. And when he shows her that she dropped her keys into a big puddle in the parking lot, she says she'll meet him at 630 at the restaurant he picked, but she's too freaked out. And I don't even blame her. Timothy Oliphant is hot, y'all. If he helped me find my keys and new details about my life, that he shouldn't know, I would still give him a chance. <laughs> because it's Timothy Olafar, are you kidding? Like, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Okay, let's move on. Lastly, we see Beaver. He's a guy in a bar. He's played by Jason Lee. He was drinking kind of unhappily and eventually leaves the bar. Beaver, they don't really develop as well as some of the other characters. He calls Jonesy from a payphone while writing SSDD in the condensation laden wall of the phone booth. And we find out from their conversation that it means same shit, different day which is interesting. I feel like that never really caught on. I've only seen it in this movie, but we realize that all of these guys, maybe except for Jonesy, are experiencing some sort of like dissatisfaction with their lives. Henry is suicidal. Pete is creeping out ladies and can't really get a date. Beaver is hanging out late drinking at a bar instead of going home to his family, which we find out that he has. He has a wife and kids, so he's unhappy too. Beaver warns Jonesy to be careful and says that he wish he knew what that meant. And so it looks like Beaver also has a telepathic ability to kind of know that danger is impending, but not enough power to know what actually is going to happen. So we've met all the characters, all of them have some form of telepathic ability. And they also have inside jokes. So they must be friends. So <laughs> So Jonesy is walking home and he thinks a stranger said something when the stranger didn't. It looks like he may be able to hear thoughts as well. So Jonesy appears to see something across the street. And in a scene that I did not remember, Jonesy proceeds to walk into the street, I guess going after the thing that he saw and he gets hit by a car. And among the bystanders that go to check on him, David, the student he helped is one of them. I don't know the importance of David interacting with him again and seeing him almost die in the street. Felt unnecessary to me, but we see from Jonesy's point of view that he's in an ambulance and he's dying and the EMTs think he's dead. But then Jonesy sees a kid with a speech impediment also inside the ambulance. And the kid is telling him to watch out for what we eventually learn is Mr. Gray. Now, because this child has developmental disabilities and a speech impediment, it's pretty hard to understand him sometimes. I don't know if any of you are experts on ableism because I am not but I don't know how this depiction feels to the disabled community. So I'm not really going to comment on it. All I'm going to say is I'm not going to be saying things like Douglas said them. I'm not going to be calling him the name that the kids called him in the movie. It just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't. I'm sorry. It doesn't. So it's six months later. 
And all four of the guys pull up to the cabin in the snowy woods. Jonesy is alive, but limping. And for some weird reason, Jonesy stands in the dark doorway of the cabin for a few seconds too long. Kind of doesn't make sense. And there's like a red light on him and I do not get it. I watched the whole movie and I was like, mm, I don't know. This doesn't make sense. But Beaver and Pete are making dinner. They're having playful banner about sex and Viagra and something they call fuckero versus fuckery. But <laughs> Jonesy and Henry are outside of the cabin chopping wood. And Jonesy is trying to help even though he's still recovering from being hit by a car. I feel like six months may be too quick of a turnaround for him to be this rehabilitated. I mean, he's getting around pretty good. He can't run or anything, but he is just limping. And it's like, he got hit by that car hard, y'all. That scene, that was hard to watch and it was very shocking and abrupt. But yeah, I'm no medical professional. I don't know how long it takes people to recover from being hit by a car. So unlike the two silly men in the cabin, Jonesy and Henry are having a more serious conversation. Jonesy feels like he's been thinking about Douglas a lot lately and Henry agrees. And he remembers how they were supposed to go see him before he got injured. So come to find out when Jonesy got hit by that car, it was because he saw Douglas, not modern day Douglas, but the young Douglas that he and the boys met as children back in Derry, Maine. Douglas was asking for help and was motioning to Jonesy from across the street. And he was in his underwear, he was beaten up, he was scuffed up. And Jonesy wonders why Douglas would call him into the street to be hit by a car. Henry thinks that there is more to the story. So we don't know very much about Douglas. We just know that he has some developmental disabilities and the guys really kind of hold him in high regard. I also want to point out that they are making a pretty clear distinction between Beaver and Pete, who are lighthearted, don't really have their ish together. And I mean, Beaver talks about cheating on his wife with someone he met at bingo. So we're assuming that she might have been an older lady. We see Pete, who has a really hard time of getting a date and really is in a career that's going nowhere fast. Whereas Henry and Jonesy, who are both professionals with degrees, one of them is a college professor. The other one is a Harvard educated mental health professional. They're making this clear distinction between like the kind of two sets of friends and it comes back later, not explicitly, but we'll talk about that more later. So it's dinner time. All four of the guys are having small talk about how movies are unrealistic. They laugh and they joke. And then when Beaver shares some useless trivia, Jonesy says, I'm filing that in the who gives a shit section of my memory warehouse. I didn't realize they explicitly talked about the memory warehouse in the movie, but they use Beaver's lackadaisical and forgetful attitude to give them an excuse to explain what a memory warehouse is. Apparently it is this mental place where Jonesy stores his memories and it's now so crowded that anytime he learns something new, he has to throw out old memories. I find this to be like a really interesting depiction of how someone's memory might work. It's actually one of my favorite elements of this story. 
Then we see Jonesy depicted, like visually depicted inside of this memory warehouse. It's like a very tall, almost six story circular room that has a spiral ramp that has his memories organized by what looks like the Dewey Decimal System. It's very library, like <laughs> has a library kind of organization to it. There's a section for sports humiliation. There's a cobweb section. There's even a triple X rated section. So he burns his discarded memories to make room for the new ones while Blue Bayou plays in the background. That song comes back quite a bit. So if there's a memory that he does not want to let go of, he puts it in this office where all of his secret memories go. It's interesting that you would have like a secret room in your mind for things that you like don't want to forget or are really special to you, but it's like a little weird. <laughs> but yeah. Like in your mind, no one else goes there. So why would you need to have a secret room? But that does come back later. It's quite convenient given what happens later in the story. So we find out that he even has a special section for Douglas on the third level of the warehouse. So Pete mentions that he's also been thinking about Douglas a lot recently. Beaver feels like Douglas is actually connected to this cabin, even though he's never been there. They've been coming to the cabin for 20 years now, and they do a toast to Douglas, who they call their dream catcher. And I'm like, what do they mean by this? We'll discuss that a little bit later. But we find out that his real name is Douglas Cavell. So like I said, I'm going to be calling him Douglas, even though they call him something else throughout the story. <laughs> it just sounds offensive, y'all. I'm sorry. <laughs> So we get a flashback, you all. It's 20 years earlier in Derry, Maine, and we see four young boys, maybe between the ages of 10 and 13, walking along some train tracks to get a look at some illicit photos. These boys are all younger versions of Henry, Jonesy, Pete, and Beaver. The boys come across a shirt, like a child's shirt on the ground, as well as a Scooby-Doo lunchbox with Douglas Cavell's name and address on it. A young beaver rightly assumes that the lunchbox belongs to a special needs child, but the words he uses are too mean and inconsiderate to repeat. So three older boys are trying to make a young Douglas, who is only in his underwear, eat poop. Like these bullies are older than the four boys. They look like they may be like between the ages of 15 and 17. So the different groups of boys start exchanging threats because the younger boys want them to stop torturing Douglas and the older boys want the younger ones to mind their business. So Pete, who has a reputation for being fast, is threatening to run home to his parents to call the cops on the bullies. And one of the bullies is the school quarterback whose reputation and sports career will probably be tarnished for bullying a disabled child. In my mind, football players have gotten away with worse, <laughs> but I suppose this is a credible threat for like small town Maine. I don't know. Like we typically give athletes and celebrities or even if they're not real celebrities, like local celebrities or whatever, a pass when it comes to some bad behavior. So I found it interesting that the bully would be impacted by this type of threat, but whatever. The young boys stand up for Douglas, even though the bullies are older and stronger and they have this sense of kind of moral superiority. They're doing it because it's the right thing. The bullies leave and they promise to get Douglas and the boys at a later date, which we never see. And when they try to comfort Douglas, he's really inconsolable, right? He was just being tortured 
trying to be made to eat poop by older boys. He's basically naked, only wearing underwear, like he's having a hard time. So a young beaver starts to sing Blue Bayou and that's able to get Douglas kind of calmed down under control so they can put his clothes back on and he starts to feel better. But he's a big fan of Scooby-Doo. He has a speech impediment that makes him say his name, which is Douglas, like the name that they call him throughout the movie. And that's why they call him that. Again, not super versed in ableism, but it feels offensive. <laughs> so that's why I'm choosing not to call him that. But the boys take Douglas home, but not before looking inside an abandoned warehouse to look for the illicit photo that they were searching for. This room that they look into happens to be an exact replica of the special room in Jonesy's memory warehouse, which is a connection that I did not make before. So we're back in the current day and two of the guys, Pete and Henry, stop at a local market where a wise old man looks outside and can tell in a lot of detail how bad the weather is going to be. So he's like, y'all need to get back to the cabin ASAP because the weather's coming in now. So next up, we see Beaver hunting in the forest and it starts to snow a little bit. So Henry is up in what I believe is called a deer blind and he's about to shoot a deer when he sees another hunter struggling to walk. So Jonesy approaches this man and this hunter is just so happy to see someone. He's been lost in the woods for two days and so Jonesy brings him into the cabin and the hunter's name is Rick McCarthy. Rick is gassy and gross like something's wrong with him. He claims to have eaten some berries in the dark while he was lost in the woods and that they probably upset his stomach. So we begin to see signs that something is not right with Rick, okay? He has a weird rash by his eye and he's really bloated like around the upper chest area. So next up, we see Henry and Pete again. We're gonna go back and forth between the two pairs of guys quite a bit, but Henry and Pete are on their way back to the cabin in their truck, and Pete appears to have a drinking problem. He's drinking really early in the morning, and they got a lot of beers when they went on the grocery run to the store. So Henry's feeling down because the client that he humiliated at the beginning of the movie died from eating himself to death just recently. WTF does that even mean? Like obesity related illnesses exist and they happen, yes, but they're typically kind of like slow killers and they involve things like heart issues. Like what does eating yourself to death mean and how can you do that in just six months? This fat phobia is silly. <laughs> better for him to say, you know, he had a heart attack or there was a clogged artery or something happened to him that was related to him overeating. But for him to say he ate himself to death is really insensitive, especially for like a medical professional. Like just the use of this chunky man and <laughs> the way that they used him is just horrible. And I hate it. We do need to get like more sensitive about the way we talk about eating and whatnot. So I found that to be rather annoying. Briefly, they show that something weird happens with the car, like they lose control for a split second, but it's snowing and I guess that's normal. So we're back at the cabin and Beaver comes in to see Rick there and he welcomes Rick. And it starts to look like the rash on Rick's face is spreading. Rick is like, mm, it's probably allergies. But then Rick starts to 
burp and fart like crazy. Y'all, it's funny because I'm a child. And this is where I'm going to restate that a lot of elements of this movie are pretty childish. Like burps and farts are kitty humor, but adults still laugh at them because of our inner children. <laughs> and so this particular element of the story with the burps and farts is just funny and childish again, as along with like a lot of other kind of childish and silly themes and elements that come up in this story. And we'll talk about that more too. But I want to point out that Beaver is supposed to be the carefree guy with tons of catchphrases and whatnot, but I actually found him to be quite annoying. I feel like Jason Lee may not have done the best job portraying Beaver. It didn't come across as authentic to me. It came across as if he was trying too hard to be this particular guy with this personality and it didn't work for me per se. Mm. Rick is apologizing profusely for being gassy, but so they lay him down for a nap and they're really nice to him. As they leave, we see his stomach move in a way that's really unnatural, like something is alive in there, okay? So Jonesy and Beaver laugh, you know, once they leave the room about how bad Rick stunk up the place. And Jonesy notices that earlier Rick's chest was swollen, but now it's his like lower abdomen that's swollen and that his rash appears to be spreading. Jonesy is like something not right this man. So we're back on the road with Henry and Pete who are driving back to the cabin and they have to pick up some speed to get over a snowy hill. And when they make it over the hill, they find a person in the middle of the road that they have to swerve to avoid. So they hit a down tree and they flip the little Bronco or SUV, whatever it was, multiple times landing upside down. So Pete claims that his leg is broken and Henry pulls him out of the car and they laugh. I don't know what about this is funny. I think they're just happy that they survived. I don't know. It's like a weird response to almost dying in a snowy hillscape. But Pete's leg is not broken. Come to find out it's just locked up. So he's injured it, but it is not broken. So we're back at the cabin and Beaver and Jonesy are at the house trying to figure out what could be wrong with Rick. Beaver is eating peanut butter out of a jar with his finger like a savage. Another kind of annoying thing about Beaver but outside we see a lot of the forest animals leaving the area in the same direction. Like these are animals that probably should be eating each other and they're leaving together. Like, let's get out of here. So some of the animals have some type of red stuff on their fur, just like Rick had on his cheek, but on the animals, it looks like hot Cheeto dust. The helicopters can be heard in the distance. We hear some helicopters and they try to flag down the helicopter there's a man who's in the helicopter who's wearing full personal protective equipment and he announces the area is under quarantine and that the issue should be resolved in 24 to 48 hours. So the helicopter leaves without taking Rick, even though they're trying to flag them down to say, we have a sick person here. Can you help us? A second helicopter is there containing a very furry eyebrowed Morgan Freeman. This is our first time seeing him, but we're about 40 minutes into the movie. But we're back on the road now with Henry and Pete. They go to examine the person who was sitting in the road and made them crash. This lady is 
sitting down in the snow and she looks frozen and unresponsive until she hits Pete for yelling in her face. So this lady is really gassy too. She says that she has to find Rick, which is the guy who's back at the cabin. So she has a rash on her neck, just like he had on his cheek. So they are obviously afflicted with the same illness. So the guys take the frozen lady to a spot in the woods and they determine that whatever is going on right now is not SSDD. Yeah, but they take her to the spot in the woods. I can't really tell what it's supposed to be, but it is covered. So it allows them, I guess, some protection from the elements. So this frozen lady's stomach is bubbling and they build a fire and Henry determines that the cabin is about nine miles away. Since he's in the best health, he'll go to the cabin, get the snowmobile and come back for them. Henry warns Pete not to go back to the car to get a beer. He shouldn't leave the frozen lady alone. This comes back later. So now we're back at the cabin. This is where the story really kicks up for us, okay? After the helicopter leaves, we're back at the cabin with Jonesy and Beaver, and they re-enter the cabin to find bloody footprints on the floor. Rick is in the bathroom, and they go to the bedroom he was in to find a pool of blood where Rick was laying on the bed. Y'all, Rick got his period. <laughs> I'm kidding. I get bloated and gassy when I'm on my period too. So these are period symptoms. He has acne. <laughs> he has the worst period symptoms ever. That is so funny. I'm sorry. That's hilarious. So Jonesy and Beaver talk to Rick through the door. Rick is like, oh, I'm sick and I just need to make some room. Rick also claims to not know that he's bleeding. And this is very concerning. I think that was the point where they were like, Oh no, uh-uh, you don't know you're bleeding. There's blood on the bed, there's a trail of blood, there's blood on the door handle. How do you not know you're bleeding? Something's not right. Beaver and Jonesy start freaking out and rightfully so, and Jonesy wants to break down the door just in case Rick is dying, but Beaver is like, no, we don't know what he got, we don't know what's going on in there. In the weirdest way, Jonesy, a grown man college professor says, Scooby-Dooby-Doo, we've got some work to do now. Now, I know that Douglas is important to these group of men, okay? I understand that Douglas has some developmental issues that allow him to keep his childlike wonder. But you're a grown man. Repeating this little phrase during such an intense moment is ridiculous. This is what I'm talking about. There being childish things throughout this movie that kind of like don't really make sense to me. Like they say another catchphrase from their childhoods, no bounce, no play. And they break down the door to find a weird black and red mold like rash all over the bathroom and all over Rick's face. Now Rick is unresponsive, but continues to drop what sounds like poo poo into the toilet. So Beaver pushes Rick and he's like snap out of it. And in the worst visual ever, we see Rick's horribly destroyed butthole as his dead body falls into the tub. Then we hear something splashing around in the toilet. Beaver sits on the toilet, but whatever is in there is trying to get out. So they flush the toilet and Beaver goes into his pocket for like a signature toothpick. So he's been using toothpicks the whole movie. I think even his, the child version of himself had a toothpick as well. So he has this little like holder that he uses for toothpicks and suddenly the thing in the toilet tries to get out and makes him drop all of the toothpicks on the floor. 
we find out that trying to flush the thing didn't work. So Jonesy is like, I'm going to go get some friction tape to trap this thing in the toilet so we can get out of here or whatever. And then Jonesy wastes time by telling Beaver to sit tight while he goes to the shed. This is not the time for jokes. Okay, this man who is sick then spread his sickness all over the bathroom in the form of some red mole. And then he pooped out something that is so strong that it is almost knocking this man off the toilet. It's not time for jokes. And this is what I'm talking about. I understand that a lot of men are immature or have immature senses of humor, but this is not the time. I feel like as a college professor, you should know that. <laughs> So obviously Beaver is upset. He is scared. And the toothpicks are what I'm assuming is some type of like security blanket for him. He looks all over the floor at the spilled toothpicks that are in blood and that nasty mole stuff. And he sees that there is one toothpick that is in a clean space that he can feel good about putting in his mouth. How gross is that y'all? This bathroom is nasty. I don't care if it's on a clean piece of tile or not. Don't put that toothpick in your mouth. This man just died from something and you're going to get whatever he got trying to get this toothpick. I feel like no real adult would do this. Knowing the type of strong danger that's in this toilet, you would risk releasing whatever is in this toilet for a nasty toothpick on the floor. This is what I'm talking about. Like this childish stuff is just, I can't, okay? So he's singing Blue Bayou to calm his worried mind and he tries to get this toothpick without releasing this angry turd. But every time he tries it, the turd monster tries to get out. So whatever is inside this toilet is strong, y'all. So when Beaver makes his third attempt to grab that little nasty toothpick, the monster escapes the toilet and Beaver slides across the bloody floor, losing his balance and his glasses. So the monster attacks Beaver on like the back of his neck and immediately Immediately we see it's an alien. So he latches onto the back of his neck, has the most horrible teeth, and he also grabs Beaver's crotch. A lot of crotch related stuff in this movie too. Again, childish. So <laughs> Beaver has a huge bite on the back of his neck and puts on his glasses just in time to see an alien worm with rows and rows of sharp teeth. The alien bites off some of his fingers and then attacks him. So Jonesy finally finds the tape and Beaver is fighting for his life. Like this movie is only like 20 years old, but I feel like they did an okay job on making the monster look gross and kind of realistic. There's obviously two versions, one where it's more like a CGI situation and then a different version that's more like a puppet. I don't know what to call it. And then immediately after that, I felt like I spoke too fast because <laughs> Jonesy finally shows up to see the monster and Beaver fighting with this monster. And right as the alien prepares to attack Jonesy, Beaver grabs it and tells Jonesy to go and get out of there. Beaver wrestling with this alien worm, that part is done pretty poorly. It's one thing to have like a CGI or cartoon version or like a puppet, but when you have to do like really fast movements with these like non-existent type of creatures or whatever that's usually where they lose the fidelity <laughs> for me <laughs> 
So instead of running when Beaver told him to, Jonesy watches as the uh, alien worm attacks Beaver in the face and kills him. Jonesy stays behind and has to hold the door to the bathroom so the worm doesn't get out. He's so upset that Beaver is dead. And then when the doorknob comes off the door so that he can no longer hold the door closed, we see a large shadow behind Jonesy. And Jonesy turns around to stare at the shadow in fear and does like a great act job and the worm crawls out of the bathroom and slithers up the body of a tall alien like 10 feet tall with like a big head and a weird gelatinous body and then the alien turns into like this red cheeto dust and jonesy breathes it in and yeah we go from there so next up, we see some more helicopters and the little town that they are in now has a military encampment in it. There's lots of helicopters. There are people being herded into a secured area. There are dead deer that are being transported in biohazard bags. And then crazy eyebrow Morgan Freeman who is portraying Colonel Curtis or Colonel Abraham Curtis arrives at this little encampment or whatever. And we see a lot of people in the town have the red rashes on their face, the same that we saw on Rick and that lady. So they will soon have the BGs and booty monsters. So, <laughs> so. Morgan Again, in this movie, his name is Colonel Curtis, is talking to a man named Owen, another kind of military leader in his trailer. And they start calling the red stuff Ripley after Sigourney Weaver's character in Alien. And they start quarantining the townsfolk and eradicating the animals as they leave like the secured area, the quarantine area. So we see Tom Sizemore playing a character named Owen. He's the other military leader that's there. And it looks like Owen's going to be in charge of getting rid of the aliens. So whatever kind of branch or of the military or paramilitary group this is, they're used specifically to attack aliens. Apparently, there are about 100 aliens left who have crash landed on Earth. And Owen is going to be in charge of getting rid of them. So Colonel Curtis knows that the aliens have an end game to spread the infection. So I'm going to try to sum up their conversation here because they give us a lot of information across the conversation between Colonel Curtis and Owen. Colonel Curtis has been fighting aliens for about 25 years now. He wants to go scorched earth and has like a lot of knowledge about these aliens. He says that they project an image of an alien that they think we want to see, like the one that Jonesy saw, like very tall, big eyes, smooth gray skin. But the actual alien is far worse looking and we get to see that the aliens kind of take two forms in this movie according to owen another guy named general madison who apparently has never really seen an alien before has an opinion that not everyone who is impacted with the ripley the red fungus that not all of them will die actually some of them will recover based on the science i don't know how they were able to do this study I don't know how long ago the aliens crash landed, but how can you tell that people are, will get better? I don't know. Anyways, the science says that basically like the little, the bubble guts and the gassiness and all of that stuff only affects a small part of the population and that people who are infected with the Ripley actually can recover and survive. At the end of the day, Colonel Curtis 
and Owen are on the same page that they need to do whatever it takes to stop the fungus, including killing infected humans. So Colonel Curtis during this whole conversation says bucko like seven times. It's really annoying. He basically says that nothing leaves this quarantine area alive. We find out that this particular military group that's here for the aliens is called the Blue Boys Unit. I'm going to call them the Blue Man Group. And they play by their own rules. They like don't salute or show rank or say, sir, it's weird. It's like they have military things, military like duties, but they don't do the kind of, I don't know what to call it, the kind of I don't know the stuff that we think about with the military, like saluting or knowing ranks or any of that type of stuff. Like it's weird. Yeah, really weird. So at this particular time, a young man named Maples, who was a part of the Blue Man Group, gets brought in to answer for not obeying orders. Apparently, this man, Maple, allowed a woman and her four-year-old daughter out of the Blue Zone because she claimed she got turned around and hadn't been in the quarantine area. Morgan Freeman is loading a gun while answering these questions and eventually shoots Maples in the hand for lying and tells Maples that he got off easy. Morgan Freeman is harsh in this movie, but he is that way for a good reason, at least when it comes to Maples, because according to him, the lady that Maples let slide is down in quarantine crawling with the Ripley and she could have gone on to infect other people. So in this particular instance, the Colonel was right to discipline Maples, but maybe not shoot him in the hand. I mean, come on. But the Colonel has decided that, you know, this is his last dance and that he wants Owen to take over the Blue Man group so that they can keep fighting aliens, right? So the Colonel gives Owen a gun from John Wayne. This is another kind of, I don't want to say that guns are childish because it's not, but it's like one of those kind of hometown hero things and memorabilia that is like childish adjacent. It's very strange. He was giving it to him like he was passing him the torch. But the gun comes back a lot later in the movie. So I guess we'll talk about that later. Apparently, the Boomerang group has a <laughs> has a slogan called go in fast and hard and come out clean and smiling. So that's supposed to give us a picture of this kind of paramilitary group, the Blue Man group that is in charge of containing this alien invasion. So next we see an idiotic Pete. We hadn't seen him in a bit, but when we do, he's hobbling back to the place where he left the lady to go get the beers from the car. Now, I just thought about this while I was doing this review. If you see when they actually have this car accident, their car flips multiple times. It's amazing to me that any of the beers would still be intact from this car accident. So there's like a little bit of a loophole there. But when he comes back with these beers and groceries or whatever, the frozen lady that they were supposed to be helping is laying down on the ground and appears to be asleep. However, when the camera pans to her backside, we see a bloody worm trail leaving her butt and the worm went into like a snowbank. Bank. So Pete is in danger and does not even know it. Maybe he would know something if he stuck around instead of leaving her by herself. So right away, Pete is ready to be punished for his sins, apparently, because he's such a bad person. <laughs> We'll move on. So back at the cabin briefly, we see a weird moving Jonesy take a snowmobile. At this point, Jonesy is pretty obviously possessed by the alien that he encountered in the cabin. So we go back to Pete, okay? Big 
dummy Pete, okay? Pete has now made his way through about four or five beers and he's talking to himself or pretending to talk to the dead lady with the bloody stool. So (laughs) he's a little wasted and we see the worm moving in the snow. Pete is starting to get really sad. This is probably one of the times in the movies where I was actually like really sad instead of kind of like entertained or annoyed. He basically said that he can't even get like a woman to eat fried clams with him. And I was like, he just seemed miserable. He just seemed so miserable. And I feel like he did the best job of depicting how even with having the powers that were given to him or the powers that he has, that he can't make them work for him. And he just kind of has like a miserable life as a car salesman in a town where even when he's helping a lady, she does She's freaked out by him, freaked out by his powers. And he's like, I can't even get a lady to get eat fried clams with me. And I'm like, in what world can Jonesy get a lady at bingo to sleep with him? And freaking Timothy Oliphant can't even get a lady to eat fried clams with him. What world is this? Okay. Pete is a very handsome man. Why can't he have a better look with the ladies. I don't know. I actually felt sad about that. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, he starts talking about Douglas and he says that years ago, Douglas gave them telepathic powers that allowed them to communicate with each other without talking among other powers that he gave them as well. So Pete's saying that he's been having a dream about this gift that they've been given. And he thinks Douglas is actually an alien that came to Earth to prepare them for something. When Pete gets up to pee, he spells Douglas's nickname in the snow. And the alien worm appears in the yellow snow and bites what we later learn is Pete's penis. And... He fights with the snake and (laughs) the snake, the worm, the alien. And Peter is able to get him off of his Peter by belly flopping onto the fire that he made. So the worm leaves and comes back and attacks him near his ear. And he gets burned again by some firewood, which leaves a mark on Pete's beautiful face. So yeah, Pete's having a rough go at it. He had to fight a worm while under the influence of like six beers. <laughs> and when you're using the bathroom, you're in a really vulnerable state. And he also got attacked while he was in the bathroom. He also got attacked on his man junk. This is what I'm talking about when it comes to the kind of like respectability situation. We'll talk more about that. But the two friends of the four that don't necessarily have respectable jobs or have the best morals or have even like not an annoying personality like they are not being maimed in the way that the other two are but we'll talk about that later Next up, we see Henry. Henry is walking to the cabin, talking to himself about how he was just suicidal a few months ago. And now he's praying for another chance at life as he's walking through this, again, snowy hillscape. So Henry senses Jonesy and says, oh, Mighty Mouse is on the way. Why are these men such children? 
Why are they making quotes from cartoons so often? Anyways, Henry is communicating telepathically with the real Jonesy and Jonesy alerts him to the presence of someone called Mr. Gray, which is the name that Douglas mentioned when Jonesy was in the ambulance, if you remember. So Henry is able to surmise that the person that's on the path just now will look like Jonesy, but will not actually be Jonesy. So Henry hides smartly so and then in a crazy scene a wacky scene the alien that's using jonesy's body actually talks to jonesy in his head the alien's accent is british so the alien mr gray tells jonesy that he's using jonesy and not beaver because beaver's head was empty we did see earlier in the movie that Beaver was actually quite a forgetful person. So the alien has been perusing Jonesy's memory warehouse to learn more about him and the earthlings. So because he has stored all of this information, it makes him like a useful host to Mr. Gray. So the alien gets thrown off when Jonesy calls him Mr. Gray. And he's like, somebody told you I was coming. Like, I'm going to have to look through this library of yours to figure out, you know, who it was and like who I need to be on the lookout for. So the alien can't access parts of Jonesy's memory, but he does want to figure it out. So we go back to Pete again and Jonesy, who is now inhabited by the alien finds Pete who is now growing Ripley on his face. So the fake Jonesy is trying to get information out of Pete asking if he can see the line. He's not really concerned with Pete's health and he eventually drops the ruse when Pete notices that he's being weird. And then <laughs> Mr. Gray uses the Ripley to like choke Pete and the real Jonesy is able to see out of the window of the office in his memory warehouse what's going on. And it's weird because instead of looking through his own eyes to see what's going on with his body, he sees it through the window in the memory warehouse like he's like 15 feet away. Like he's watching something on television as opposed to experiencing it inside of his body just through his own eyes. It's very strange. After the fake Jonesy uses the Ripley to choke Pete, Pete is basically forced to use that little fancy finger of his and point Mr. Gray in the direction of Massachusetts. It's a little bit of a stupid power, I think, but it's at least useful to Mr. Gray. So the real Jonesy gets a knock on the door inside of the office of his mind and the alien is trying to access what's hidden from him. He wants to know who warned him about Mr. Gray and who taught Pete that little trick. This scene is a little weird to me because Mr. Gray brings up the line, which is the first time I've actually heard it mentioned in this movie. The line is actually the telepathic powers that connect the four boys and Douglas. I only know that because that's how it's described in like the movie descriptions that I read. I don't think I've ever actually heard the men call it the line in the movie. So Mr. Gray may have found that in the memory library and used it to his advantage. I'm not really sure. I don't think they bring up the line ever again, even though that's like what they call the connection between the boys. 
So next up, we see Henry. And in the most heroic scene of the movie, Henry makes it to the cabin door. He finds Ripley has grown all over the walls and it's even growing on the Dreamcatcher. He hears a noise and grabs a gun and the whole house is like covered in Ripley and it's still growing. To me, he's a little too curious. And to his credit, that turns out to be like really good in this particular instance. He finds Beaver dead. And then when he stands where Jonesy was, he gets a glimpse of what happened. The alien like possessing Jonesy's body. So he sees that telepathically. Then he hears the worm in the bedroom and sees that it's laying eggs in the bed. He has to shoot twice, but eventually he gets the worm with the second shot. And then he gets some lighter fluid to get rid of these eggs. But then as he's trying to, you know, put the lighter fluid down in the area, he sees that there are some eggs that were already hatched behind the pillow on the bed. So yeah, he sees the little babies, the baby worms on the floor, and they start crawling on him. I'm like, why aren't you getting out of there faster? They're crawling on him. He's knocking them off. He's stepping on them. It's pretty gross. And he's freaking out so much that he drops all the matches that he has except for one. And so he successfully lights the match, killing the hatched and unhatched aliens and he burns the place to the ground with that lighter fluid and rightfully so Henry you're my hero because if I went in there and saw all that red stuff I would leave immediately and there would be little worms everywhere <laughs> we all be dead we all be doomed okay I would not go to explore to eventually see that there are aliens propagating in the bedroom okay Ugh. thank you Henry <laughs> So in the next scene, we get a dream catcher flashback. We see the young kids again, the four boys and Douglas, and they each made a dream catcher and tied them together to represent their friendship. So at some point in their friendship, a girl with special needs goes missing. She's presumably in the same class as Douglas. So I'm assuming that the boys realize that Douglas has special abilities and they try to get him to find her. At this point, he does mention saving the world against Mr. Gray, but the boys misunderstand what he's saying and kind of glaze over it. So they all touch Douglas and think of Josie so that Douglas can use his powers to find this missing girl. Why are these children so kind and altruistic? It's one thing to save like a disabled kid from being bullied, but to recruit your friend with special abilities to save a young girl. I'm not saying that it's impossible that they would be that kind or nice. They just never really explain why all of these guys are so kind hearted or anything. It's a little weird. But the boys all touch Douglas and think of Josie and Douglas looks up and he sees something that looks kind of like a spider web. I don't really get an explanation for that. But the boys are all crying and spent and emotional from him using his powers. And at this point, Douglas shows Pete that he now has the ability to use the line to find things. In this case, Josie. They also realize that they can read each other's minds. So during this weird moment where they're touching Douglas, he gave them telekinetic abilities. What's funny about this is that instead of finding Josie himself, he gave them powers and was like, you find her. <laughs> and I wonder if like they use Douglas like a little party trick or whatever. 
find this for me. Tell me this. Read that guy's mind. Okay. Like Pete follows his finger into a ravine and finds a purse that we assume belongs to Josie. And Douglas sits down to play with the toys that are in her purse while they go and find her in like this sewer grate. Apparently it trapped her down there. <laughs> I don't know. But Beaver sings the Mighty Mouse theme song or whatever, and they form a chain to grab her and Douglas is just hanging out. And Douglas's real power is delegation, y'all. Like, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> no, I can't be finding stuff for y'all all the time. I'm not out here. I'm not the police. I'm not out here finding missing children. If y'all want to do this little police work and investigation or whatever, y'all do it yourselves. That's hilarious to me. So we see Henry again. He's walking in the snow and for the first time he sees the helicopters. The men in the helicopters actually approach the spaceship crash site and the helicopters include Owen and Colonel Curtis. But there are other helicopters there that are designed to attack the spaceship and kill the remaining aliens. So as they're approaching the crash site, the military guys are hearing voices in their head saying, please don't hurt us. It's usually children's voices or like really soft voices. Uh, the aliens are actually communicating telepathically with them so that they won't attack them. But Colonel Curtis is like, keep your eyes on the prize. They finally come up on the spaceship and they prepare to attack. And when the aliens see that they're about to be attacked, they transform from those weird, tall, big eyed aliens and then transform into themselves where they just look like a bigger version of that worm with legs and they actually run pretty scary. It's actually a little freaky, I think. A few of the aliens make it back to the spaceship and activate it to self-destruct. I find it weird that so many of these aliens actually stayed at the crash site. If the objective is to infect people, why did they stick around? Why aren't they out dispersed infecting people? I don't know. But some men end up dying in the self-destructive explosion despite being told to pull out when the colonel realizes what's about to happen. So it looked like the only two survivors were Owen and whoever was in his helicopter as well as Colonel Curtis. So... We lost some people to the struggle, y'all. So next up, we see Pete and Mr. Gray. Pete starts talking about Douglas. He's obviously sick now. And Mr. Gray wants to know more. But Jonesy warns Pete not to say too much. So when Pete tells Mr. Gray to bite his bag, Mr. Gray transforms into his alien form and kills him by basically biting him in half. Jonesy watches in horror from inside his mind. And yeah. He saw yet another friend get killed by these aliens. Mr. Gray in Jonesy's body makes it to the highway and flags down a truck where he finds a man with a dog. The man has a gun and Mr. Gray turns into his alien self again and also kills this man. And he uses the dog that he calls Ike to eat the cargo in the back of the truck that's contaminated with the Ripley. So suddenly Mr. Gray realizes that Jonesy is active in the memory warehouse. While Mr. Gray was fool all on with the dog and this guy, Jonesy left the security of his private office in his memory warehouse to go and grab his files on Douglas. Unfortunately, and weirdly enough, Jonesy is also limping inside of his mind. It's your mind. You can't make yourself run faster. <laughs> I don't know what 
don't know. I don't know. But Mr. Gray returns to the warehouse in his alien form. It's quite creepy. I feel like in the movie, they may not have actually showed a full still version or vision of these aliens. I still feel like a little foggy on what they look like all together. I understand like the top half, but I don't know if I saw the top half of the alien and the bottom half all together. And when I did, they were running. So with the motion, it was like hard to visualize them. It's pretty interesting that I don't get a full picture of what the alien actually looks like. But he is creepy chasing Jonesy in this little memory warehouse or whatever. And interestingly enough, Jonesy is able to get back into his office before the alien can catch him. I want to say what we can see of the alien is pretty decently designed. So we're back to Henry. Henry is skiing and he falls down and he comes across the blue man group who point lights and guns at him so he doesn't leave the quarantine area. So back at the blue man group base, Morgan and Owen are in hazmat suits going through the barracks where all the people who are infected with the Ripley are. There are women, there are children. They're making false promises to these people that, you know, we'll get you back home as soon as possible or whatever, knowing darn well that Colonel Curtis wants to kill them basically because they are infected. So as they are leaving that little barracks area, Owen comes across Henry who has been transported to the encampment and he suggests that they need doctors in that little contaminated room. So Colonel Curtis speaks to Henry and sells him a dream about getting him back to Boston. But it appears that Henry is reading the Colonel's mind. And the Colonel has this weird episode that to indicate that Owen is, I mean, that Henry is doing just that. So Morgan goes on this tirade back in his trailer with Owen that everyone who's in that room basically has to die. And Owen says, studies show that at least half of them will survive if they just get a few days to recover. And the colonel is like, you need to be worried about a hitchhiker that can get out of the net and spread the disease to the world, basically. He says that if we can kill the women and children here, we can save the ones out there. (laughs) That's basically his philosophy. Henry is still outside staring at the colonel. And then the colonel says something that actually is really disturbing. He's like, if we start at two, we can be done by 2.30. Basically saying we can kill everybody in there in 30 freaking minutes. Like how inhumane is that? And they do briefly say like, you know, we can get rid of this except for like the bad dreams. Like they do have consciences at least a little bit. But Colonel Curtis has reached the point of being like crazy and like we shouldn't trust his judgment anymore. So next up, we see this weird kind of turning point with Henry and Owen. Henry sees Owen again and asked him about, you know, what is your wife Rita and your daughter Katrina going to think? Oh, they both have hurricane names. <laughs> oh, Jesus. But anyways, Henry asked Owen, what are your, your wife Rita and your daughter Katrina going to think about you killing all these people? Henry tells Owen that the colonel obviously has lost his mind from hunting aliens for so long and he wants Owen's help to kill a bunch of people. And so Henry plays these mind games. He is a psychologist on top of being able to read people's minds. Very Professor X. He talks about Owen's father. And that's the thing that gets Owen to listen. 
that's, I guess, when he recognizes that Henry actually does really have this ability. Henry's plan is to get General Matheson on the line to stop the colonel from killing the people. And then they need to go to Jonesy to prevent the hitchhiker who's already out from infecting the world. So Owen talks to the colonel and they do this little tricky switcheroo or whatever. And basically it buys them enough time for General Matheson's people to come in and take over the encampment so that a bunch of innocent people don't die, which also allows Owen and Henry to escape so that they can recover Jonesy. Colonel Curtis, when he realized he's been double-crossed, is absolutely pissed off, and Owen is his next target. He is not the type of person who lets go of a grudge. So Owen is on his dunzo list. We see that Mr. Gray and the dog have an accident due to a blown-out tire, and Henry and Owen try to get close enough to Jonesy to make a telepathic phone call. And that is exactly what ends up happening. A phone appears in the memory warehouse office and Jonesy uses it to call Henry, who listens to Jonesy's voice through that weird John Wayne gun. What kind of movie is this? If you're connected, oh, Jesus. Why couldn't they just talk to each other? Why did it have to be a phone and a gun? This is childish. I don't know. I don't, why? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Anyways, they chat briefly. They find out that Mr. Gray is heading towards Massachusetts and that they need to go and get Douglas. So Henry starts doing some weird surmising. He's making these leaps in logic that we can argue if they're good or not. I don't really know. Some of them don't make sense to me, but whatever. He assumes that Jonesy is still alive because dying in the car accident changed him. Apparently his heart stopped twice and dying then bring back to life has somehow altered him to the point where he is immune to Mr. Gray. And by that logic, Douglas actually did coax him into the street so that his brain chemistry or whatever body whatever would be so different so that he would be immune to Mr. Gray's effects so Douglas really did like coax him to the street on purpose and he also realizes that Douglas must have known this was coming all along don't really care for these leaps in logic like it tries to make the story make sense in a way that doesn't make sense so make it make sense. Like, <laughs> whatever. So we also find out that none of the guys have seen Douglas in years. So it's time to pick up Douglas. Harry and Owen head to Derry to pick up Douglas. And Douglas is played by a very convincing Donnie Wahlberg. Y'all, Donnie does not get enough credit, okay? He also played the young man who killed Bruce Willis's character in The Sixth Sense. And his body was transformed. He didn't look like himself then as well. And it's the same thing with Douglas. Like... In this scene, Douglas has leukemia, so his hair has falling out. He's looking really sickly. Doesn't really look like Donnie Wahlberg at all, and he's doing a great job of being like super convincing of being like the older Douglas. Like, what in the heck? Why doesn't Donnie have an Oscar? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He did a great job. We briefly see Douglas's mother and she's basically saying, I'm letting you guys take him because I haven't seen him excited about anything in a long time. When he came downstairs to hug Henry, Henry's face was shocked. And I later realized it was because he didn't realize that Douglas would look that way because he didn't know that Douglas was sick. But when he came 
downstairs and hugged Henry, my heart was touched. This is, again, one of the only times that I felt an emotion besides being annoyed at this movie. <laughs> I literally almost cried. I was like, no, no, no. Like, he looks so excited. His mom basically knows that he's not coming back and that he's going out to save the world. So yeah, when Owen reloads that little John Wayne gun, we get like an x-ray view on the gun to show that there's an actual tracking device inside. I did not remember that, but Colonel Curtis is like a little cunning bastard, okay? So next up, we see that Matheson's, General Matheson's crew has left Colonel Curtis's trailer alone. And in his trailer, there's like a secret room where there's a guy tracking Owen through the little tracking device. So Matheson comes to visit the trailer and he and the Colonel don't have a good relationship. The Colonel hates this man. Okay, General Matheson is like a three-star general now. And I think the Colonel feels like he just doesn't get enough credit for saving the world from intergalactic demise or whatever. The Colonel actually does something weird where he kind of plays down what's going on a little bit and he's like I should have retired after the last thing that happened in Kansas City or Virginia or wherever it was and he's like I don't even trust my judgment anymore 25 years of fighting aliens has changed me and it makes sense that you're taking over right here right now don't think he means any of it but he's just buying enough time so that he can go and exact his revenge so yeah even when the general is like, we got some electronics going off in here. And he's like, oh, it was just me using the phone to call my wife. They'll be off in an hour, whatever. So Mr. Gray and the dog again have crashed in the snow and a police officer comes by to help them. But Mr. Gray kills him immediately and they steal the police car. Henry ends up remembering that Douglas already knew about Mr. Gray in that little flashback from earlier. And Douglas is saying Mr. Gray wants water. So with some more surmising, Henry figures out that they're heading to the reservoir that supplies the water to the town of Boston. So they also learn that one worm infects the world. So Douglas communicates with Jonesy and Mr. Gray, which causes them to crash a little bit. So Mr. Gray is aware of Douglas now, and the dog is just about ready to give birth to a butt worm. So Mr. Gray goes on his way now that he kind of knows a little bit more more about what he's facing. So y'all, this is almost the end of the movie. The Colonel hijacks the chopper and he uses the tracking device to go find Owen and the crew. So when Mr. Gray gets to the reservoir, Owen is basically right behind him. And somehow Henry knows a lot about this reservoir and where to go. He's like, we need to go to Aqueduct 12. What you been doing at this reservoir that you know which aqueduct to go to? How does Mr. Gray know what aqueduct to go to? This is strange. Anyways, by now, Mr. Gray is injured in Jonesy's body, okay? He's had a few car accidents, one of which Jonesy kind of tricked him into. He's bleeding a little bit. He's limping. He, you know, just six months ago, he was in a car accident. So he's not getting around very well. But he brings the dog into the reservoir and Owen decides to go in and confront Mr. Gray by himself. But then he hears a helicopter and realized that Colonel Curtis has come to exact his revenge. So Owen has to shoot for his life and Henry and Douglas almost get shot too because, you know, the Colonel is shooting from a helicopter overhead. They got to get, take cover, right? 
So Owen ends up taking a bullet, but then Owen reloads his gun and then uses the John Wayne gun to shoot out the back propeller on the helicopter, which leaves Colonel Curtis to die in a fiery car crash. So <laughs> Henry and Douglas get their bearings and they come across Owen who bleeds out in the snow. And now it's up to Henry to save the world now, y'all. And Henry is realizing he might have to kill his friend because he don't know how to separate Mr. Gray from Jonesy. He don't know how that's supposed to work. So Henry orders Douglas with his stuffed Scooby-Doo to go back to the car. Right when Mr. Gray gets the sewer grate open, the butt worm is born from the dog and it attacks Henry when he comes into the door and Henry kills it with the gun, fortunately. But then Henry talks to Mr. Gray and like confuses him. He's under the impression that he has to shoot his friend to make sure that Mr. Gray is gone forever. But in the meantime, an egg comes forth from the dead worm. So there is still a chance that this infection will happen because one worm infects the world, right? So Henry starts to talk to Mr. Gray, who's in Jonesy's body and says, tell me something only we would know, something that Mr. Gray would not know about. The egg hatches and one of the questions that Henry asked to Jonesy is like, what was painted on the wall by the windows at Tracker Brothers? That's the little place that they went to see that little nasty photos. And right when Jonesy is about to say it, Douglas comes in and finishes it and he's like no bounce no play so the alien monster leaves Jonesy's body when he realizes this is Douglas this is the guy who warned you guys about me and we finally kind of see him in his full form he's very hideous a large version of that little worm or whatever it just has legs it also has a very long pointed tail and yeah, it's hideous. But again, I feel like I still didn't see it from the head to toe. Like, come on. But Douglas is like, Scooby Dooby Doo, we have some work to do now. And it's like, okay, when Douglas does it, it's not as bad as <laughs> when Beaver. <laughs> when Beaver and Henry do it, it's not the same. It's not, and Jonesy, it's not the same, y'all. It's not the same. So the alien steps over Jonesy. And Douglas approaches this big alien with no fear. And Mr. Gray is about to kill Douglas. And he stabs him in his chest with his tail. But Doug is still alive, which is weird. And then Douglas ends up transforming into an alien, like a brown alien, and uses his own sharp tail to kill Mr. Gray. And so he starts to do this thing that was very similar to what happened to the spaceship when those aliens activated it. Everything kind of starts turning gray. There's like a weird membrane that's surrounding both of them and they end up kind of self-destructing. Again, similar to what happened with the spaceship. So Henry and Jonesy are witnessing this and they just watch their friend from their childhood turned into alien. How freaky is that? But it looks like Doug is consumed and self-destructed as well. And so he sacrifices himself to save the world, y'all. Something that he always knew he had to do. I'm very curious about how his mother plays into this, y'all. Where does she get him from? She didn't birth him. She couldn't have. He's an alien. Is she an alien? Was she just the lady in charge of taking care of the alien on the earth? I don't know. Did she make a deal with somebody? I don't know. I'm very curious about his mama. I am, but we never get a backstory on that, I don't think. 
So after the self-destruct situation happens, uh, the red stuff, the Ripley stuff fills the air and Jonesy kills the little worm that hatched from the egg before it can reach the water in the reservoir. So the world has been saved and the movie ends, y'all. Ta-da! <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so that's the end of the movie. So... At the end of every review, we always ask if this movie is worth a rewatch and if it holds up. For me, despite being considered a box office flop, I think the movie is worth a rewatch, but I'm less sure on if it holds up. As I was rewatching this movie, I noticed that there were a lot of childish moments that I feel like kind of took away from the story. I also feel like there's an issue with ableism in this film. And while Douglas is not black and thus cannot be considered a magical Negro, it really is Douglas's disability that's the vehicle that's used to name the character, to enhance the fact that he has mystical powers and explain his otherworldly origins. So he's not a magical Negro, but but if there is equivalent for a disabled person, then I would classify him as that. Especially since they talked about him through the entire story and he's really only in it for maybe 10 minutes. And in the end, of course, he sacrifices himself to save the world. It's very on brand with what a magical Negro is considered to be when it comes to literature and film. The two guys who died in the movie, Pete and Beaver, were poorly developed characters and they were depicted as being very silly as opposed to the more serious and professional surviving friends, Henry and Jonesy. So there's a little bit of respectability politics going on too about like who deserves to survive in these stories. There were positive elements to this movie as well though, like preventing a bloodthirsty monster from killing innocent people, standing up for people with special needs, and finding a unique way to depict the human memory, which again is probably my favorite element of this story. Damien Lewis, who played Jonesy and Mr. Gray, and who apparently is also in Billions. I didn't know that. My husband watches Billions and I don't. So when he saw me watching this, he was like, that man looks familiar. Is he in Billions? And I was like, no, that's not Paul Giamatti. <laughs> But apparently he is, and maybe the lead character, I believe his name is Axelrod in Billions. But Damian Lewis, the actor who played Jonesy and Mr. Gray, did a really good job of playing two characters in one body. And pretty much all of the acting performances were really good, except Jason Lee, who played Beaver. Again, he annoyed me in a way that didn't seem authentic. Like his level of annoyance was turned up to a point that it felt a little campy and it felt like it was just a vehicle for us to feel less sorry for him when he died first, which I don't like. Overall, while rewatching it, I felt like the movie was sillier and more childish than I remember. It was full of catchphrases and silly, childish inside jokes, and it felt more corny than indicative of their childhood friendship with Douglas. It's almost as if their 20 plus year friendship with Douglas was only informed by the first year when they were children. Like a lot of the jokes that they made, we saw them make those same jokes back when they were like between the ages of 10 and 13 in those flashbacks. Where are the inside jokes and things that you all learned later on? Like why is this one year you're focusing on so hard? I don't know. I don't know. It's strange. 
There were also a few elements of the plot that were a little fuzzy, like how Jonesy dying was the reason why Mr. Gray used him as a host instead of like an incubator for a buttworm. Like the graphics are only okay. They aren't horrible, but they aren't the best either. So yeah, this movie makes me feel really in the middle. Like I faithfully watch this movie about once a year, but it wasn't until I really like examined it through the critical lens of this podcast that... I'm realizing that it's way cornier than I remember. So I'll probably continue to rewatch it just to like relive these corny and maybe even cringeworthy moments. But for the movie to only be 20 years old, I feel like it doesn't completely hold up for some of the reasons I mentioned earlier. The Rotten Tomatoes critic score is 28% while the audience score is 35%. And even though I find this movie entertaining and enjoyable, and I will likely rewatch it in the future, I kind of get why people rated it so low. Like, I'm not even mad about these ratings. I can understand the difference between a good movie and an entertaining movie. And in this movie, I was entertained, despite recognizing that maybe it's not as good as I remembered it. <laughs> so thanks so much for listening to my review of Dreamcatcher here at Sub Media Reviews. Let me know what you think about this movie. Does it hold up for you? Did you rewatch it recently? Share your thoughts on our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. In the next episode, I'll be reviewing 13 Ghost featuring Tony Shalhoub with a special guest. Peace out. Thanks for listening to Sub Media Reviews. I hope you enjoyed our trip down memory lane just as much as I did. If you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like me to review next, or if you just want to share your thoughts on today's episode, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Pinterest at Sub Media Reviews and on submediareviews.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps me improve the show and spread the word to new listeners. So until next time, peace out, home slices. Peace out.